I'm Amy Hoffman-Lang. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guests today are Lynn Einbender and Susie Rowlander. Lynn and Susie are faculty members in reading and literacy at Bank Street College of Education. We invited them to talk about how children learn to read, especially in the context of the current push across the country for what is called the science of reading. Welcome, Lynn and Susie. Thank you. So nice to be here. Same. Lynn, maybe you could start. Would you speak briefly about what its advocates mean by the science of reading? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I've seen a lot of variation about that. And it also, it depends on who is speaking. So I feel like the largest megaphone has been the media. And a lot of what is said, in particular, what Emily Hansford has said, and has been promoted is a emphasis on phonics, mainly to the exclusion of other parts of reading. And that's pretty much where we take issue with it, is that it's, of course, phonics is part of learning to read and continuing to read. That's not really in question, but it's the balance of other parts of the reading processes, because it is many integrated processes that are necessary. I mean, I've seen other people amending the sort of dominant science of reading, I guess, stance to include comprehension, for example, and fluency, in which case, if that's the version they mean, then we're okay with that. So it's it's really hard to like answer that definitively because there are so many people speaking from different vantage points, some of whom are educators and some of whom are, you know, in the media. Susie, is there anything you'd like to add to that? No, I, I guess the only thing that I would say is that I think it's a very broad range. And I think we hear mainly the ends as we often do. And so I think there are a lot of folks in the field who actually are much more middle of the road, but because of the kind of politicization, you know, that it's very political, we hear the loudest voices and that makes it seem like much more of an either or. Yeah, I would agree with that. I feel like it's been sensationalized. I guess, because that attracts attention. What are the most effective ways to support children in learning to read and acquiring literacy? We would say that there's more than one effective way, but the the current focus is on the teaching of phonics. And again, it almost feels like a red herring because I don't know anyone and I haven't known anyone for several decades who would contest that systematic phonics instruction is a useful thing. I mean, there's more than one way to teach phonics. There's more standardized ways of teaching phonics and more and ways of teaching phonics that are more responsive to children, which is where we would end up. But the question of whether to teach phonics or whether teacher educators should teach teachers how to teach phonics, to us is, is a settled thing. I, 
you know, we don't even really understand why that's been so prominent. So I think that the, you know, the history of reading instruction, like sort of roughly like, well, I guess it's a little over 100 plus years ago, has gone back and forth. And I think that, I mean, in the 19th century, the sort of the back and forth was, was between phonics and whole word approaches. And then I would say in the 20th century, it's also whole word. In the earlier part of the 20th century, there was also a whole word approach. And many people might know that as like the Dick and Jane readers. It mainly relied on memorization. That was challenged. I mean, a really famous book in 1955, Why Johnny Can't Read, said that doesn't work and we need to go back to phonics. But phonics has never gone away. So it's really not the not the what of it, but the how of it and how the how skillful teachers are on bringing in students engagement and teaching phonics in a way that it's pretty readily implemented in the process of reading and other parts of the reading process include read alouds which are really central to helping kids build their oral comprehension their vocabulary and that's really essential as essential as phonics to the reading process learning to read Susie anything I missed yeah I think what is important when we think about how we teach kids to read is that it's a very complex process and there's so many pieces of it that I think one of the issues that has come up and and we are seeing a lot in schools is that there has been kind of an overcorrection or a leaning into the importance of teaching phonics. And and we're not saying that it's not important. Absolutely. But what has happened recently, actually, a lot is that we're leaning into that while losing other pieces that Lynn just spoke about. And what the consequences of that are that students get to second and third grade and they can decode or figure out the code how to say a word or a passage, but they don't, they aren't able to understand it. And so I think that's for us why, you know, absolutely we need to be teaching phonics and we need to be teaching comprehension at the same time. And we need to be teaching how the phonics we teach integrates into when students are actually doing that reading. So it's complex. I think that's a huge piece of it. One of the elements, I guess, in the so-called reading wars over the past maybe 30 years has been the idea of balanced literacy. What does that mean and how does that fit into things? Well, I think I would actually go back, you know, to the 70s and really, I think we have to start with whole language, which came out of, I think, really a lot of linguistic information coming into the to the mix, especially like psycholinguistics and, and social linguistics. And that really privileged comprehension and kids' engagement with reading over some of the how to read things. In other words, phonics would be taught, in, we would call that approach embedded phonics, like as it came up, it was taught. 
So when students came to words that they couldn't decode, they were taught the skills like kind of right on the spot in response to what they were reading. Balanced literacy, which sort of hit the schools in the late 80s into the 90s, attempted to hang on to that engagement with whole text, high quality literature, which are, you know, the purposes for really is the purpose for reading, and added or included other components where what we would call word work, which phonics is absolutely word work, although it wasn't exclusively phonics, because there's other things that are important, like morphemes, which are like the endings, and like people would know them as suffixes and prefixes, for example, are also like really important to reading. So, I mean, it's phonics and more in the word work, along with that continued emphasis that came out of whole language, which is largely carried by the read aloud, and also differentiated reading instruction, which is what guided reading was designed to be. I think one of the problems, and this is actually an ongoing problem in American education, is, is that it wasn't fully understood, meaning out in the field, and it was unevenly implemented. If balanced literacy is really conscientiously implemented, where you're giving you know, enough attention to the development of comprehension and the decoding skills, and you're doing it in a differentiated way, meaning you have kids who are in similar places working on similar strategies, and you're taking them through a teacher-facilitated learning process, and I should also add opportunities for them to read independently books that they're able to read. So that there's a lot of practice, a lot of practice on reading. I mean, bottom line, kids learn to read by reading, which doesn't mean that there aren't skills that we teach, like maybe in isolation of the actual reading process. I think that's one of the things that we've been seeing that really concerns us in the classrooms which we're in. Like in first grade classrooms, kids are now, or teachers are now mandated to spend 40 minutes on phonics and they're saying we don't have any time to do the read aloud. So to us, that's an out of balance situation. Again, going to what Susie said, it's not either or, it's both and. And I think it is harder, it's harder to teach both and. It is easier to just get on one bandwagon and say, this is what we're going to do and everybody's going to do it. And it's a program and just follow it and, you know, hold everybody accountable for doing the same thing at the same time. However, that's not effective instruction. Can learning to read be separated from learning to write? Can it be separated? Well, it, I mean, they're separate, but they're, they're, they're kind of symbiotic. I mean, talk about phonics, for example. Early writing in most classrooms uses a process called invented spelling. In order to spell, first graders rely on, or and even younger, sometimes older too, but whatever, young children rely on using phonics to sound out words. And it's seen as a, well, first of all, it's a fabulous opportunity to use the phonics that they're being taught. 
in the writing process. And it liberates them from being concerned about getting the, the right spelling down so that they can really focus on what they want to say. And then at a later point in the writing process, the teacher does, you know, explicit instruction around editing, which could look at some of those invented spelling and look at the standard spelling and, you know, make comparisons between the two. So there's many opportunities for them to enhance each other. Absolutely. And I, I also, you know, it's interesting. I think as it gives kids also a purpose, if we teach writing well, it gives kids a purpose to write and a purpose, right? So if the, the child is writing the principle or if the class is writing the principle that they really want to change some type of rule out in recess and by writing that, even with it, at a certain point developmentally, you know, if they haven't been taught the exact spelling, if they send that message to the principal and the principal starts talking to them and they get that changed, there is an authentic purpose for their writing. And they, and again, with reading, the more we read, the better we become, the more we write, the better writers we become. So I think it's also giving them authentic reasons. And, and really, in the end, we should be giving authentic reasons for both reading and writing. So, yeah. I mean, John, I think another part is that when you, I mean, look, time is the currency in schools. <laughs> I mean, there's never enough of it. And how you spend it is really consequential. And so if we take time away from other parts of the reading curriculum, which includes all of the things we were saying before, like just to say it again, that's comprehension, fluency, decoding, vocabulary development, and writing and the ways we're talking about and word study, which would include spelling, right? So a full-fledged language arts program includes all of those components. And so if, if we focus on one of them, it takes up so much time that we have to like let go of others. We've created an, an unbalanced reading program, basically. So a majority of states and many districts have passed laws related to science of reading instruction. How have these impacted student achievement? Or have they? Well, I think the jury's out on that. Because what happened, you know, the last time we went through this, which was pretty much and was, you know, mandated by no child left behind that or at least for all the districts who needed the Title I money, the consequences of privileging phonics instruction over other parts of reading instruction, we didn't see the consequences pretty much as Susie was saying until like third grade. I mean, in-house, you know, people talk about the third grade cliff and it's where it's where expectations really change pretty dramatically to the upper grade, upper elementary grades. And sometimes you don't find, you don't really find out the child's reading issues until third grade. Like they could have been decoding accurately, let's say in grades one and two. And then when content gets 
more complex if this is if comprehension instruction was let's say very minimalized that's where it's going to come to you know unfortunately to fruition so sometimes you don't find out like right you know <laughs> that quickly and also i think a lot of times people don't make connections i mean sadly don't make connections between let's say what's happening with third graders and what happened with them when they were first graders, let's just say. The, the science of reading advocates say that it's necessary because so many children are not becoming proficient readers. What would you say to them? And more generally, what would you advocate as the best ways to help more children become proficient readers? What's the best way of approaching that? Well, it's not a quick fix. I would say the best way would be to prepare teachers more thoroughly to teach reading. I mean, right now, you know, in New York, which is one of the states with, I guess, at least requires a master's degree, but even for a master's degree, only requires two courses in the teaching of reading, and that includes everything reading, writing, comprehension, decoding, I mean, the whole shebang. And if, let's say, they were to require more of elementary, more preparation for elementary school teachers, we would have more people going into the field better prepared to teach. It really has, it comes down to an investment in teachers, which of course is an investment in children. So that's, if, if we really wanted, if we truly had the will to solve the problem in a long-term way, that would address it. Because one of the things that we haven't talked about is learner diversity, which is huge. And so the best way to you know, address learner diversity is to have a highly skilled practitioner who has a repertoire of teaching strategies and can pull from those those strategies in response to the kids the teacher is teaching. I mean, that's the most effective. I mean, this, this is why when people keep saying, what's the most effective intervention? And tutoring, high quality tutoring comes up and this is like decade after decade. And it's because a highly trained tutor is responding to the individual child. Now, obviously that doesn't translate well into a classroom where you've got one teacher to 25 kids. But I think that there, I mean, there are ways to do that, which I don't know if we want to get into the weeds about that, but the the insight though is still true. There's, there's patterns to how kids learn to read, absolutely. But there's also tremendous learner diversity along, you know, like many different factors go into that. And I think, you know, I think at Bank Street, what we try, I think that the difficulty with embracing a program, which is happening so much now, a, a program does give a baseline of a scope and sequence and kind of a roadmap. But what I think Lynn is to add on to what Lynn was saying, not all of your students in your class are going to need exactly what the program says each day, right? And so really what we try to teach at Bank Street is given a certain program, how would the teacher differentiate 
for the different learners in their class. So we actually, in in the kind of one robust, we have a, a literature class and we also have a how to teach reading and writing class. And in the reading and writing class, their final project actually is to, after working with a student all semester long, a group of them, then each with their own students they've been working with, they design a week of literacy curriculum based on a program, but then how are they tweaking the program in order to meet the needs of their students? So it's what Lynn is talking about of having some really highly skilled teachers because back to the point of time, if we are teaching all kids the same and through the same program, we're wasting many kids' time, right? And so we really need to understand our students first and foremost, and then be trained enough to understand what each of those students need and how we can meet their needs in our classrooms. I mean, just to add on to that, I think a way to sum it up is that any program is going to work for some kids, but no one program is going to work for all kids. And so when an administrator or Department of Education or wherever the mandate is coming from says this program has to be implemented in this way at this pace for everyone in the classroom, it's going to leave some kids behind. It's going to be a right fit for some kids and it's going to be the wrong fit for some kids. Some kids were already past what's being taught. Some kids aren't ready for what's being taught. So it just goes back to like a one standardization is not a good way <laughs> to teach a wildly diverse group of students. It's just not the right fit. I think you are sort of answering this already, but as you know, Science of Reading advocates specifically criticize widely used programs such as Lucy Calkins Reading Workshop, and Fountas and Pinnell's level literacy intervention systems as being the wrong way to teach reading. What's your opinion? So what I would say about Lucy Calkins is, is that she also has a program where she's got you know a number of programs. And it, you know, the same thing that we said about you know phonics programs, we also would say about those programs that doing doing it the same way for like all the kids and also schools across many contexts and geographic regions. It's, it's better if people were, had the background knowledge and the preparation to look at like, let's say a Calkins unit and as Susie said, tweak it for the students that they have. And like Susie does that in her reading class. And I also do that in the course I teach on writing. Students look at, at published curricula and they, in some cases, change it a lot. In some cases, change it less. I mean, it depends on who they're teaching. So I think the critique that's lobbed at, you know, at Calkins is the same critique we would lob at any program, right? If schools want to sort of outsource their decisions to publishing companies who publish these programs, then they need to realize that they're going to need quite a few different programs because no one program is going to do everything. So Hawkins does something, Wilson does something else, you know, like if you want to rely on programs, you're going to need quite a few of them and you need to have somebody who's knowledgeable enough to 
pull together different programs so that you really have a full-bodied, comprehensive reading curriculum. I would say the same thing with Fontisipanel. Fontisipanel, like leveled literacy intervention, is essentially a, a form of guided reading. It's one part of a reading curriculum. Are there any particular resources that you would recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about any of these questions? I know when we were talking the other day, there was one book that you mentioned that you thought was particularly exciting for people. Yeah, I I think that Jan Birkins and Carrie Yates have really done a fabulous job. Their book is called Shifting the Balance, and they... They have looked at the science of reading and balanced literacy and have basically come up with six shifts while not throwing away the important pieces like we have talked about, the teaching of comprehension, the the reliance on really incredible read-alouds, literacy, I mean, literature-rich experiences for kids. And they have come with six really important shifts for for blending those and taking the best. They are also coming out, that's a a K through two book. And we're also they're also coming out later with a three through five book. And I I think their resources are phenomenal. So we haven't talked in terms of reading and children with special needs. Is there anything that you'd want to say about that? So I I think that a lot of the push for science of reading is coming from families who are understandably really frustrated that their children who have who are special needs have not been adequately addressed in the schools. And this is a larger systems issue. I mean, I don't feel like we've done special education well in the country. I mean, there's some exceptions for that, but I mean, kind of writ large. And so those kids often have fallen through the cracks. And some of what science of reading is advocating for is actually an appropriate instructional response for the roughly 20% of kids who really struggle to learn to read for a variety of reasons. I think an important thing to know is, is that those kids are very idiosyncratic learners. There's no one reason why somebody has a hard time learning. So if anything, they need a more individualized approach, like a, an intervention program that really does fit them. But that's not the reason to give an entire class, you know, an intervention program. It's kind of like the idea that they're inoculating the other kids or something against, you know, reading failure, which is the name of one of the very popular programs, which is called Preventing Academic Failure. So the title tells you that it's coming from a deficit perspective. Kids that are coming from really different linguistic and social and cultural and ethnic backgrounds are really expected to conform to the English, the demands of 
English as it's coming through in the phonics programs. And that's problematic in terms of kids hanging on to either identity and their first language oftentimes. Yeah, I mean, I two thoughts about learners of English. First is just the value of being bilingual, right? So, I mean, I don't think that is even discussed many times. We we request it, require it when kids get to middle school and high school, but when kids come in, that other language or languages are not valued. But the other thing I think we don't really understand well when we are so driven by test scores is that the process of acquiring English is incredibly complex and it takes, according to research, three to seven years for full acquisition. And so actually learning the phonetic code and decoding is is actually the easy part in in terms of all of that and the complex piece comes with the the higher order thinking that one has to do in a new language so i do think we have to think about that when we are assessing new language learners in terms of their reading that it actually takes quite a long time And also, as we said earlier, the oral comprehension is a really foundational component to learning to read. So, yes, you need phonics, but you need the oral comprehension. So if you're only if you're only just developing that, the time needs to be given for that to kids to get more fluent before I would layer phonics on on top. Is there anything that we haven't asked about that you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, I think the question of of equity, which is an ongoing challenge in American schools for a whole host of reasons, is something I'd like to to talk about. Again, going back to the idea of standardization, I think some people think that if everybody is getting this same approach that that is in fact an example of equity and i would argue that it's actually not because kids have different needs and if that standardized approach is not addressing them then we're not achieving that goal the other thing that we didn't really touch upon is whose language (laughs) whose form of English is represented in the programs that are being purchased. And by elevating one particular kind of English, which is the dominant discourse, which is white English, over all of the many other Englishes that our children are speaking in schools, can send a message to kids that undermines aspects of their identity. And that's really concerning also. I mean, I think it's well-intentioned, but it's problematic. Susie, do you want to add anything to that, the question of equity? 
Yeah, I I do think I agree with you in the standardization and and I think it comes back to the fact that we have to pay attention to the learners in front of us. And there are, you know, there are some learners who come who have, you know, very in-depth background knowledge that help in terms of their oral language comprehension. There are some learners who don't. And so if we are primarily focusing on phonics, it actually disadvantages those students who come with less background knowledge because we aren't giving them the oral language comprehension that they are going to need. So by simply saying, we are going to give all of these students this phonics program that they are going to learn to read. Well, again, that's that's one part of reading is the decoding. But if you're not giving them the other part, then you're actually disadvantaging them because of we've, as we've spoken before, they get up to the more difficult readings with complex language and vocabulary, and then they fall away because they can't actually sustain the reading and the comprehension. Thank you, Lynn Bender and Susie Rolander of Bank Street College of Education. And thank you, listeners. Check out our new video series, What Would You Do? A collaboration with Dr. Mira Levinson of the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Ethics. Go to our website, ethicalschools.org, and click video. In the first case study, a teacher using action civics faces pushback from a parent. The goal of this series is not to provide right answers, but rather to illustrate a variety of ethical viewpoints. If you found this podcast worthwhile, please share it with a friend or 10. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco Bay areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.